Hello, welcome to Candy Jail. This is a show about the commercialization of the food system and all the externalities that come along with it. In order to explain the direction that this show will be going in, I want to quickly tell the story of how I came to be interested enough in this topic to go through the trouble of making a show about it. In 2018, I stumbled into working alongside a food rescue organization called Joyce Kitchen. Joyce Kitchen would visit the building of the supportive housing program I worked at and deliver the excess food from grocery stores to the residents free of charge and free of any ritual of humiliation to prove that they needed the food, like signing papers or proving income, which is a shockingly common thing for any other food rescue or food bank to do. They simply brought tons of good food over and laid it out for people to take. It often came in such excess that there were leftovers that had to be discarded. Even what was being saved couldn't all be salvaged. I had been vaguely familiar with the idea that food waste existed, but when I thought of food being handed out to people, I usually imagined canned food. I could have never imagined that New York strips, maple syrup, bison beef, perfectly ripe produce, and pretty much everything else in between was just conveniently discarded. But after seeing this process take place several times, it was one passing comment by the founder of Joy's Kitchen, Kathy Stanley, that really rocked my limited understanding of the food system and activated my curiosity. So Joy's is run almost entirely by volunteers. People who do the work of picking up the food from supermarkets, sorting it, and then helping to distribute it. And Kathy explained to me that sometimes volunteers would refuse to take food home for themselves, thinking that they shouldn't take the food because they could afford it from the supermarket and that other people might need it more than they did. That sounds perfectly reasonable, right? Well, apparently not. Kathy told me that she would offer these self-conscious volunteers an ultimatum. Either take food home for yourself or don't bother coming back because you don't understand the extent of food waste if you're willing to leave any of this behind. Contained within that ultimatum was an entire paradigm shift to my understanding of the logic of supply and demand, and by extension, everything I'd been taught to know about food itself. It was also a call to action. It activated me. It turned me into a hypercritical observer of the supermarket. It made me start volunteering at Joy's Kitchen. As a result, I started physically handling and moving thousands of pounds of this excess food. I experienced the absurdity of sorting through this perfectly good food, an extremely educational process in and of itself. There's more of it than I could have ever imagined, often the most expensive items that I'd never consider purchasing. It felt subversive and taboo to participate in this food underworld, like I was part of something that I wasn't supposed to know about. What I'm trying to relay then with this show is everything I've learned along the way, not just about food waste, but about the food industry's evolving and outsized impact on the human experience. We'll be working through the effects that this has had on both our physical and mental health, our communities, and the environment. I notice that when I hear criticisms of the food industry, they're usually focused on specific elements of a much larger system, such as very valid concerns over factory farming, the use of harmful chemicals or sugar content, or really anything. There are infinite, unique, and extremely dire problems that our food system faces. But what I seem to hear much less often is an all-encompassing criticism of the food industry, one that connects the myriad issues and acknowledges that almost all of its problems stem from the fact that it is designed, first and foremost, to make money. So what we'll be doing here on Candy Jail is reframing some of these equally important issues within the larger context of the food industry. Because everyone knows that something is wrong, but the plenitude of problems leads us, with all our good intentions, in different directions. So how did we get to a place where the food system is so out of control that about 40% of it is reported as wasted? 
Much of that wasted food is wrapped in plastic, of which there are now more than 5.25 trillion pieces floating in the ocean. How did that come to pass? The food that once resided in the plastic filling the ocean is responsible for more than doubling the global rate of diabetes in the last 40 years. How did these radical changes unfold? Because all of the changes were deliberate actions. There are no accidents when we're talking about hundreds of millions diabetic and trillions of pieces of plastic in the ocean. With each episode, we'll be investigating how we got here and trying to demonstrate how utterly bizarre this state of affairs is. Without any further ado, here's episode one, the origins of the supermarket. As I see it, there's actually a very neat place to start the story of the commercialization of food. That story begins with one Clarence Saunders, the founder of Piggly Wiggly, whose development of the supermarket would usher in an entirely new mode of producing and consuming food, overnight changing the basic structure of human subsistence. It might sound surprising, but the supermarket is still a relatively new concept. It has its origins as an actual codified patent. It feels inorganic, and it is. But here's the first manifestation of the supermarket as we know it. Patent number 1,242,872A, filed by Clarence Saunders on October 21st, 1916. The patent is for the self-serving store. This would be the first time that customers would shop for themselves, which was Saunders' way to cut back on staffing costs. Really, this was it. He saw a way to get around paying people by telling the customer to do the work that the grocer had once done. Believe it or not, this was unheard of. In order to explain, here's Raj Patel, public policy professor at UT Austin and author of Stuffed and Starved, The Hidden Battle for the World Food System. At the end of the First World War in the United States, there uh, were uh, food supply shortages, there were high prices for food. Um, and uh, the retail model at that time depended on you going into a grocery store and saying, you know, Mr. Grocery Store Worker, and it was usually gendered that way, right? It was men behind the counter. And you would point to the things that you wanted, and you'd, you'd come in with a list, and you knew exactly what you required, and that person behind the counter also knew kind of what you wanted. They might try and sell you a couple of extra things because they knew that, you know, your daughter had a birthday coming up, and would she like this? Or, you know, th th there was a certain kind of personal relation. And in fact, if you couldn't pay, sometimes that person behind the bar would, ex you know, behind the counter would extend you some credit. They, they would be part of a sort of service provision model that was, you know, I mean, it was certainly capitalist, but it was also, you know, the, the, the sort of crude edges of that consumerism were blunted by the personal relation that you had with someone. Uh, now, Clarence Saunders saw uh, in this relationship between the customer and the, you know, the nice person behind the counter uh, a, uh, an impediment to the selling of more things. So Clarence Saunders gets a patent for an entirely new kind of grocery store in which, uh, again, this notion of the, the rat becomes uh, fairly central. In, in Saunders' version of the grocery store, what you've got is, uh, imagine a sort of maze that's got fenced in with chicken wire, and all you've got is row upon row upon row of stuff. Uh, there are staff there, but their job is to make sure that the shelves are fully stocked. Uh, and they're not there to interact with you other than to take your money at the end of your journey through this long maze. Um, and that's a very different mode of engaging with stuff. Um, all of a sudden, your list 
is unnecessary because if you just go through, you're forced to look at everything in the store. And the idea is that not only will you take what you need, uh, but you'll also take what you want. And that, uh, that idea of wanting, uh, trumping your idea of just coming in with a set, well-defined list of things, um, inaugurates a way of consumerism that encourages excess, that encourages more and more people, uh, sort of more and more things to be on those shelves, uh, things that aren't entirely necessary for your well-being, but are entirely profitable for the grocery store uh, and will essentially encourage you to overconsume. But the back end of that is a much more interesting story, right? Because if you've, uh, you're, you're encouraged to consume on site, if you're encouraged to consume on impulse, then all of a sudden there's a whole industry that gets set up about manipulating your impulses. Uh, you know, we're fairly basic creatures. Uh, there are certain things that we know are going to manipulate our impulses. The smell in a grocery store, for instance. Uh, they've done studies to say, to, to observe that uh, if you have a bakery in the grocery store, and when I was growing up, there weren't bakeries in the grocery store, the bakery's next door. If you have the bakery in the store, the smell of baking bread makes you buy more stuff. Uh, so that's why more and more grocery stores have bakeries built in. Uh, and uh, they've uh, discovered, look, I mean, nobody likes seeing empty shelves because we're used to seeing full ones. No one likes seeing slightly blemished produce um, because we're so unused to what produce is meant to look like that we think that actually if it's not geometrically stacked in perfect pyramids of, you know, spheres of totally uniform colored oranges, then there's something wrong with those things. Uh, and so our experience of uh, going into a, a fancy grocery store is one where we're being seduced and uh, encouraged to shop on impulse. And this all comes from Clarence Saunders' uh, real insight that if you can make money out of people being impulsive creatures rather than calculating ones and rational ones, you can make a, you, you can make a ton more money that way. It's easy to see how revolutionary this idea was in birthing consumerism. It's plain to see just by looking at the success of Piggly Wiggly. By 1923, a mere seven years after opening the first Piggly Wiggly, there were more than 1,200 stores in the U.S. Here's the beginning of the world we see around us today. Not only in the form of food, but in everything that there is to sell. Even in things that we never thought could be sold. The idea was transformative. It created a new paradigm in which choice was presented to people as an inalienable right. It made us feel rich with power, wielding the ability to pick between two brands of flour. It's easy to see how seductive this new mode of purchasing was. People simply didn't know any better, and all of a sudden they had flour insisting to them that it was the best they'd ever taste. TV show lets you run wild through a supermarket. Supermarket Square! What TV show lets you grab everything you can get your hands on? and then helps you find it. Now we've just hidden another $5,000. So come and get it. It's our final day of the Cruise to Paradise Week here on Supermarket Week. Fittingly, Saunders himself was a master of the world of marketing tomfoolery that he would play such a massive role in expanding and developing. Even the name Piggly Wiggly was designed to confuse. Once asked why he chose such a strange name, Saunders replied, so people will ask that very question. 
His efforts at promoting the store included beauty contests, garish stunts to attract passers-by, and aggressive marketing campaigns in the newspaper. Saunders would take out full-page newspaper ads, which became famous for their outlandish quality. They would grab attention with huge print declaring things like, My head fell off. It just got so big, it fell off. Only to follow these headlines with the weekly bargains at Piggly Wiggly. His old newspaper ads were like a prototype for the Budweiser. Hello? Yo, it's T. True. And this is the way he got people in the store. It worked. Saunders eerily forebode the tactics of marketing that would take over. Oddly enough, he seems to have anticipated postmodern advertising, where the actual substance of what is being sold is not the subject of the ad. Instead, it exists entirely to demand our attention. We'll be getting into the ramifications of this idea much more in depth in later episodes, but for now, just consider that Saunders understood that what made the supermarket work was a knowledge that human will could be bent with the right methods. And those methods spread like wildfire, well beyond the confines of the supermarket. The shift was sudden and the takeover it had in nearly every aspect of our lives is plain to see today. You don't have to squint hard to see the direct line between Clarence Saunders and the data mining that tracks our every impulse and taste, studying us and our weaknesses. After all, what was Saunders' great insight? Noticing that people were more likely to purchase goods if they were let loose like a kid in the candy store. We can even see the internet today as a virtual expansion of the literal grocery store aisle with all the same tricks that started on the shelves of Piggly Wiggly, but now perfected to a science. This is proliferated in every corner of life, removing the physical limitation that stood in the way of constant impulse manipulation. But beyond the relatively easy-to-see manipulation of shoppers that began with Saunders' invention, a much more dramatic change was taking place in order to facilitate that development. The food industry morphed its mode of production in order to accommodate this new boom for food that was made for the purpose of catching your attention. Here's Raj getting further into the implications. We've all likely heard of Michael Pollan's uh, idea of eat food, mostly plants, and not too much. And what he's talking about there is that uh, you know, we all know what it is that the human body needs to be healthy. Uh, it's food, generally whole foods, uh, and mostly plants just refers to you know, uh, exactly that. You know, uh, fresh fruit and vegetables and cereals and nuts uh, uh, and, and you know, high fiber grains lightly processed if processed at all um, and you know home cooked or cooked uh, fresh that's the best kind of diet that humans know because that's the diet we mostly had over the, the entire history of human evolution um, the problem with that diet is it's not profitable and uh, if you are in the business of making profit if food isn't if food only incidentally feeds people but actually the main reason for food is for you to make money then uh, the, the sort of wholesome and nurturing character of food is a pain. Uh, really what you want is maximally profitable stuff. And the great thing about food is that people need it every day. Uh, and if you think of food not as a nourishing and beautiful thing, but as a commodity that people seem to be addicted to, uh, then your attitude to it shifts. Uh, and what you want to do is try and get as, most, uh, as much of the value of any dollar anyone spends on food going into your pocket. Now, if you're having to split that with the farmer and the distributor and what have you, and there's not really much processing going on, then the farmer might, you know, might, might make double digits in terms of uh, a percentage of the final price. Uh, and if you, could, if you could find a way of getting that into your pocket, you'd be better off. Even if the consumer weren't better off and the farmer weren't better off, you'd be better off. 
Uh, and so if you want to go for a large slice of the ultimate sort of dollar spend, if you, if, if you want the largest percentage of a dollar that anyone spends on food to go into your pocket, then you need to come up with something original, something that no one else can provide. And uh, that's why processed food that's heavily marketed, where marketing forms a large part of the, the budget for, a, you know, of, of the, the cost of any new consumer product, that's the way in which uh, food companies make money. So you make money not by giving people stuff that's healthy. You make money by giving people stuff to which they are in some ways drawn by biology that is rich in salt and fat and sugar. supermarket, symbol of the highest standard of living in this country today. In and of itself, this was a new state of affairs. Food was not a shelf product before, and therefore, it was centered on meeting the needs related to cooking. Think raw ingredients. Remember Raj's description of buying food from behind a counter. Before the supermarket, there weren't shelf items to consider. A cook had to be familiar with all the ingredients that made up their food. They were required to understand its quality and where it came from. But after Piggly Wiggly introduced consumers to shelves that they had to navigate on their own, new foods were packaged and prepared for them. Ideas such as convenience began to be marketed just as much as the food itself was, and in doing so, introduced processed foods on a massive scale. This change reverberated into our cultural tendencies, removing the need to engage with more intensive labor associated with culinary traditions. It led to the consolidation of farms and the hyper-specialization of specific foods most conducive to processing, like corn. Preservatives and packaging became a new necessity of the consumer food boom, creating new industrial needs to provide both along the way. This bears expanding on. The boom this created was somewhat of an industrial revolution for food. All the shelves needed products that had hardly existed up to that point. Beyond the growing and processing of food, transportation networks needed to be developed. New chemicals were needed for preservation. Pesticides were needed for new super farms. It was a drastic change. Imagine how this would have unfolded. It was like a giant commercial vacuum had just emerged. And all that packaging? It needed to be designed with eye-popping color and slogans. And just like that, an entire industry emerged to fuel the battle of the brands. Marketing as we know it was born. Some people call this a war. War or not, one thing is sure. A daily battle is being waged in supermarkets all over this country. A battle for the customer's dollar. If your school for food has been turned from uh, a, a, a counter with some bloke behind it who will tell you what this new thing is or you know, whether it's any good or what other people think about it, uh, and instead the school is, oh no, you're not even allowed to talk to these employees, they won't respond to you, you have to read what the marketers tell you, then that's a radical transformation in the way that you learn things. Uh, but in order for that learning to uh, you know, to, to make any money, the thing in, inside the packaging has to last. Uh, and so packaging becomes an increasingly important part of how it is that we, uh, you know, we interact with our food. We, we don't interact with our food raw. We're not encouraged to sniff and to taste and to bite, um, which, you know, I mean, in France, in French farmers markets, you are legally allowed to take a bite out of something to see whether it's any good. Um, whereas, you know, do that in a supermarket and you'll be arrested. So I think that, the, you know, that, that model uh, is precisely right, that the packaging is a way of privatizing something until you've committed to it.
the, the interesting sort of revolution here was the idea of the supermarket in which the social relation between us and the grocer is broken. Uh, and instead, uh, you know, by having store workers instructed not to tell you anything, instructing you to pay attention to the label uh, and to, to read only the advertising that the advertiser, the, the, the product manufacturer themselves has constructed, that I think inaugurates a certain kind of um, transformation where we, the consumer, are meant to be in charge. And it's a very interesting shell game because then we, the consumer, get blamed for our consumption choices that were essentially foisted on us by a lack of relationship and connection to the things that we've had otherwise and previously known. The rollout of the supermarket even changed geography, as local farms were not able to keep up with the economies of scale emerging around them. This was when food stopped being local. And how we've gotten to a place today where the average piece of food in the grocery store travels 1,400 miles to get there. And this is still unfolding all around us, as food companies in search of eternal economic growth expand their markets in the global south. That price because now we know that this is our fight. The walls kept falling. The battle kept coming closer. Now we are sure it is the fight of us people. We will pay the blood and the sweat and the tears because they are the cash we are using to buy a better world. When it's all over, we want our kind of world. Only we want it to be even more our kind of world than it has been. When I was writing Stuff and Style, I was living in South Africa, and um, the, the, the largest uh, supermarket chain there is ShopRite, uh, and they've been expanding aggressively through uh, South Africa and certain parts of Latin America. Uh, and they're, you know, they're copying the business model of Tesco and Carrefour and a range of others. Um, and it's horrific, because what it does is uh, remove the sort of plenitude of buyers and sellers uh, and reduce it to just one very large buyer who can dictate to farmers uh, what it is that they're going to get for their price, uh, you know, get for their, their produce, uh, and uh, that can decide on a whim, oh, well, no, this, this, you know, these tomatoes are a little too burned or this, you know, these tomatoes have uh, some wilt on them, uh, so I'm afraid we're not going to take this. And if there's no choice, for the farmer, because if they've come to depend on a supermarket really uh, as the monopsonist, as a single buyer in a, in a market, then all of a sudden you end up with uh, farmers really at the, you know, unable to sell their, their produce for anything like what they thought they would get. Uh, and so these kinds of uh, imperfect markets, which you know, uh, supermarkets are essentially monopolists. If they had had their way, there would only be one supermarket in any given, uh, operating in any given market. I mean, there are a few, but there's, it's still an oligopoly. It's not the free, the free market at work in, um, as you might see in a, in a regular sort of street market. The supermarket has changed our private lives and the world around us. It ushered in a consumerist revolution expanding far beyond food. The scale of this change is one I personally put on par with how drastic the changes of Saunders' contemporary, Henry Ford, were. Karen Saunders isn't a household name like Henry Ford is, because he was never able to hold on to the success that he inadvertently changed the world to achieve. Saunders actually lost control of Piggly Wiggly after Wall Street attacked the Piggly Wiggly stock, financially ruining him and wrestling the company away from him. Piggly Wiggly's expansion matched the logic of the Roaring Twenties, an explosive change without consideration for the consequences. Just like that, the empire Saunders built vanished. Having made such a drastic impact on food production and culture, Saunders is remembered today as little more than a quirky oddball. 
In fact, his legacy is mostly celebrated for his business acumen. But in his subsequent endeavors, his attempts to regain his fortune and legitimacy, we see how hollow and self-centered his enterprises were. Following the heist that saw Piggly Wiggly taken from him, Saunders launched a new grocery store called Clarence Saunders, sole owner of my name. Eventually, his last-ditch effort to increase efficiency and cut costs was to launch Kidoozle, the first automated grocery store, finalizing his ideal of as little human interaction with food as possible. But this too fizzled out, and it wouldn't be until recently that customers fully automated their shopping experiences with self-checkout. Saunders died in 1953, long since fallen from his Piggly Wiggly peak. Lost in the chaos of history, Saunders remains largely forgotten. But to consign Saunders' legacy to the dustbin of history is to discard the story of the dramatic shift he caused in our social, cultural, and environmental landscapes. He was a man who, like his contemporary Ford, changed the face of the earth and ushered in a new era. New production techniques needed to meet the demand his model created, opening the door for corporate farming and seed manipulation. Nearly as soon as he had revolutionized the food system, his invention had become nothing more than a tool for use of others, leading to a total proliferation of his model. The dominoes had begun falling, and bakeries, small grocers, and butcher shops all toppled accordingly. Our diets reflected this change, and with it, epidemic proportions of diabetes and heart disease have swept across the U.S. and wherever American supermarkets emerge. The oceans are filling with the packaging Saunders knew would grab our attention in the store, and the transportation networks to move those petroleum-wrapped packages use even more petroleum to move them around the world. The supermarket was American capitalism in its purest form, an initiative with the intention to cut the cost of operating business without any regard for the future implications that that action might have. Well, that wraps up this episode, but it doesn't wrap up Clarence Saunders in our story. His presence will be felt throughout every episode, as the supermarket was the major catalyst behind so much of what we'll be covering. Over the course of the show, we'll keep on exploring how commercialized food has changed our world. We will look at how social dynamics have changed with food that discourages eating with others. We'll explore how food waste fits perfectly in the supermarket model, which is to say, it's not just an unfortunate byproduct. We'll look at how commercialized food is spreading overseas, and sowing destruction everywhere it goes. All that and much more. The show was written and produced by me, Marcus Puskar. The music is by Will Park Hill. And I received a tremendous amount of editing support from Jacob Sorrells. My guest today was Raj Patel. Be sure to check out his book, Stuffed and Starved, The Hidden Battle for the World Food System. It was a truly invaluable resource for me. Thanks so much for listening. Life in a candy jail with peppermint bars, peanut brittle bunk beds, and marshmallow walls. Where the guards are gracious.